This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. If April showers bring May flowers, for me those flowers must include my roses. They are in peak bloom from late April through the month of May, and while they are certainly not perfect, my roses will win no awards. We, by which I mean both me and my roses, and us as humans and our collective roses, we have history. Deep and long, thorny and colorful, political and medicinal, fragrant and comforting. We have history. As Michael Marriott, senior rosarian at David Austin, indicates in this conversation, which we had in late February, roses are perhaps the most beloved of all flowers cultivated by humans over history. There are, of course, others, the orchid, the peony, the camellia, the chrysanthemum. But roses have stood the long test of time. And when I think of my garden, native and habitat-oriented, organic, wild, a little messy, it will never be without the comfort of roses. Michael Marriott is the technical manager and senior rosarian at David Austin Roses, and he's among the world's most respected experts in the subject. He's known for his rose garden design and his common sense approach to looking after these plants. His own gardens have always been run on organic principles, and in them he selects only the healthiest varieties of roses and generously intermixes other flowering plants to increase the biodiversity and attract and support beneficial insects and other microorganisms. At David Austin Roses for more than 35 years, Michael's knowledge of roses is encyclopedic and his love for them is expansive, especially the fragrant roses, the species roses, the old roses, the climbers and ramblers, and the best of the modern and English roses. He joined me from his home and garden in England. Enjoy the conversation. Michael, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Uh, thank you very much. Good to speak to you. And to you. So it is spring here in Northern California, and I am a rose lover, and I have roses on my mind, Michael. And so I am very excited to speak with you. Tell listeners what you do as a rosarian for David Austin Roses these many, many years now. Oh, Quite a variety of things. Uh, I mean, that's partly why I've stayed with the nursery for such a long time. 35 years now I've been here. Uh, when I first joined the nursery, it was still um, quite small. We only employed, I don't know, a dozen people or so, something like that. And uh, I was employed as nursery manager. So I actually spent quite a lot of my time out in the field, getting my hands dirty, working with everybody else, um, doing the work. And then I, I was very, very lucky. I joined the nursery at at just the right time, really. The, the Rose Graham Thomas had just been introduced a couple mm. of years beforehand. And uh, that was really the rose that uh, helped to make David Austin roses and the English roses famous, not only in the UK, but in the States, um, Europe, uh, Australasia, and, and the Far East as well. So um, a little bit of money started coming in and more people started taking interest uh, in our roses. Uh, and so the nursery really grew quite rapidly after that. And my jobs changed as we went along. And so I started doing more in the way of designing rose gardens and 
talking to um, important visitors that came to the nursery, wanted to know about more, traveling around the world, looking at um, various rose gardens and talking to growers and things like that. It's been a fantastic job, fantastic development. And then a few years ago, some, the, the nursery grew to such an extent that I, I couldn't do everything that I was doing to, going uh, meant to do. And so I just now specialize really in giving advice and design rose gardens and being the, the really the front face of the nursery. Mm-hmm. Although now I've started to retire, actually. So I'm as a lot of people, I think, who start to retire, they, they find themselves even busier than they were before. <laughs> so I'm actually absolutely flat out at the moment, but still having great fun. That's That's great. You started a couple of years after... Graham Thomas was introduced. What year would that have been that you, that you started there and that Graham Thomas was introduced? Uh, Graham Thomas was introduced in 83 and I started around now in uh, 85. Wow. Yeah. And maybe for listeners who don't know and love David Austin and David Austin Roses already, why was that such a big deal at that time, Michael? Because it was. Yes. Well, I mean, the... the the uh, David Austin had been uh, running the nursery since 1969, and um, but he'd, he'd had very little recognition at that time in the 60s and the 70s and, and even into the 80s. The, the hybrid tea and the floribunda were still very much, you know, if, if anybody said rose to you, then you, you, your mental image was immediately a hybrid tea or floribunda, and and I think it's especially so in the states. Uh, and so the the to, for David Austin the, the English roses are are harking back to the old roses and so a very very different shape of flower to the hybrid tea so rather than the high pointed center of the hybrid tea um, the English roses look like the old roses which generally uh, but not not always have lots lots of petals and and often a, a rosette. Uh, shaped flower mm. and the the habit of growth is very different too so rather than the stiff upright growth of the hybrid tea uh, the English roses were much more shrub like much more I- informal in habit and so he was when he start, started in 1969 he was very much uh, swimming against the tide uh, in the states there were people like uh, Jackson Perkins selling you know growing 20 odd million roses a year uh, and that was just one rose nursery, and the same in the in the UK as well, and around Europe, there were so many nurseries growing roses, but they, all of them really, except for very odd exception, were all selling hybrid teas and floribundas. Nobody was interested in the old roses. If you said the old, if you said old rose to people, uh, then they immediately thought of something old-fashioned and often once flowering. You know, everybody wants right. their rose to be repeat flowering. So uh, so they immediately dismiss it uh, out of hand. Uh, and uh, but So he, he was very fortunate when he, not only was it Graham Thomas, but actually two other varieties, Mary Rose and um, Heritage, he also introduced. Yeah. And uh, it was those two ro- those three roses that really... Um, he was so lucky to to introduce them in that year, and he took them to the Chelsea Flower Show and uh, introduced them there. And the press got hold of it, or got hold of them, and they started um, raving about them. And then everybody who went to the Chelsea Flower Show um, wanted to see Graham Thomas, wanted to see uh, the Rose Graham Thomas, wanted to see David Austin, 
the punters would go along to the other rose nurseries. You know, where's Graham Thomas? Where's Graham Thomas? And of course, they got heartily <laughs> sick of this. You know, where's David Austin? You know, who's this upstart coming along to the nursery <laughs> wanting to see these roses that we've had nothing to do with? His roses have completely revolutionised um, our thought of the rose because um, up to then, as I say, people wanted just hybrid teas and floribundas, and they they planted them in in rose gardens, in rose beds. You know, you never mixed up roses with other plants. That was just completely taboo. You know, it's r- refreshed and completely revolutionised um, our thoughts of roses. Thankfully, right, and it has. You know, it's a relatively short amount of time. You, of course, have spent your career at this, so it's long in a person's life, but it's a relatively short amount of time that we were able to um, have this this change up in what we see as beautiful and what we demand of the plants in our garden and uh, what we're willing to do to take care of them. Um, so we'll dive back into that a little a little more further on. Let's go back to you and your earliest influences. Where were you born and raised and who were the people and plants and places that grew you into a person that would start out at David Austin these years ago and stay this long? I was actually born in France. My my father um, worked uh, in, in in Calais, which is actually just across the English Channel from from uh, Dover in England. Um, uh, but he he was brought up in France himself, so spoke. Uh, he was bilingual. So, um, uh, and they both my parents were very very keen on plants, and so we had a large garden there. And I, I two things I remember from that garden were one was the bearded irises. He had a, a big collection of very very beautiful bearded irises, and the other thing were very old um, espaliered pear trees. Uh, so it was a lovely garden. So I was always, uh, as were my brother and sister, always encouraged to do you know some gardening. And so we all had our little patch of garden. Um, and then we came back to England when I was um, seven or eight, I think. And um, we moved to a, a very big sort of two, three acre garden. And my parents didn't have a lot of time because what they were doing at the time, they didn't have a lot of time to actually garden. And so gradually over the years, I took more and more of the garden on myself, you know, and, and I was actually more or less looking after the garden, uh, myself mowing the lawns and, and planting vegetables. And so I, I developed a great passion for for plants and and was able to do a lot of trial and error and I think that's what you need to do when you you know if you haven't got somebody to show you what to do you need to just try it out it's it's you just got to use a little bit of common sense and learn from your mistakes mm-hmm. and I learned a huge amount of, uh, about plants and gardens um, over the years and but I also come from my mother's side on a from a farming background and so when it came to going to university the my perfect choice of um, course was agricultural botany. So I love plants and so the botanical side was fascinating to me. And then because I come from agricultural side, the agricultural slant on that was was perfect too. So uh, I went to Reading University, um, extended as long as I can because you know student <laughs> life is very good. <laughs> so I took a year off before going to university. I took a year off I did a four-year course and took a year, also took a year off in the middle of university. 
um, and uh, and did a lot of rowing at the university as well. Nice. Um, so I had a great time. And uh, on my year off, I went to Swaziland, uh, which is in southern Africa, mm-hmm. uh, borders between um, uh, Mozambique and um, South Africa. And a tiny little country, uh, which was wonderful then because uh, at that time South Africa was deeply apartheid, which really shocked me. I didn't realize that. It was just so shocking to to realize that. Uh, whereas uh, whereas um, Swaziland was, was not at all like that. Um, so that's where I started to have a great interest in tropical plants and see foreign flora, which just fasc- absolutely fascinated me. I also managed to um, squeeze in a trip to India and again up to Assam and again saw amazing tropical flora up there. So after graduating from university, I messed around for a year or two and then went back to the tropics and um, got a job with the same company, but this time in the Pacific, uh, growing rubber, cocoa and oil palm. So um, first of all, growing rubber and cocoa in um, Sabah, which is on the island of Borneo, which was just absolutely fascinating. And then to the Solomon Islands, which is like an idyllic Pacific island, uh, middle of nowhere, and then to Papua New Guinea. Um, which was also uh, absolutely fascinating as well. So I spent five years abroad uh, in the tropics, then decided, well, you know, you spend too long abroad and then you, you very difficult to integrate yourself back into normal life, as it were. So I came back to, to the UK and just by chance got a job at a rose nursery just north of London, uh, which was strange because I, up to then I hadn't regarded roses as of, of any value at all because I, I saw them in my grandparents' garden and there were these, you know, classic image of a of a, a rose bed, these sort of more or less leafless stems with maybe the odd flower on top and acres <laughs> of bare soil in between and you know just boring really uh, and and um, ramblers that have been there for the last sort of 50 years and looked absolutely gruesome as well that wasn't a success really it wasn't a good place to work but then the job came up up here at David Austin's and he offered me the job and I was very happy to accept so came up here and uh, and yeah <laughs> I've been here 35 years now <laughs> I'm Jennifer Jewell and this is Cultivating Place Michael Marriott is the head rosarian at David Austin Roses. Founder David Austin Sr. died in 2018 at the age of 92, having introduced more than 230 modern English roses. We'll be right back for more with Michael Marriott. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. If you listened last week, you might recall the idea of plants as landmarks in our lives, as wayfinders and mile markers over time. Roses are so one of these plants for me, and I'm not even sure why. In my childhood garden at 8,000 feet along Colorado's Front Range, I think roses were pretty hard to grow. My mother didn't grow a lot of them. She must have had some, but I don't really remember them strongly, the way I remember her peonies. But later in life, especially in her final garden, along a tidal marsh in South Carolina's low country, she grew lots of roses. And more importantly, I think, throughout my life, she always wore tea rose perfume. And this scent, I remember, oh my God, I remember it with a warmth and happiness that closes my eyes and radiates up from my belly. 
It's a safe, simple, satisfying memory that can reset me as needed, like my garden does daily. Mother's Day is coming up in all of its hallmark superficiality and messy human complexity. I wrote about this a little bit in the View From Here Views letter I sent out last week, about the idea of motherhood, of mothering, and of course about the love and care for that mother to us all, Mother Earth. She is the original generous gardener, isn't she? May's View From Here newsletter, entitled Mothering the Future, can be found at cultivatingplace.com under the newsletter tab. And if you're not already subscribed to get it right to your email inbox once a month, you can sign up for it right there. That's on cultivatingplace.com under the newsletter tab. Now, back to our conversation with Michael Marriott on roses and life and the love of both. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. As the Romeo and Juliet quote goes, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. But with absolutely no disrespect to Shakespeare, would it really? There is plenty in a name. And according to Michael Marriott, who joins us today, David Austin used to say that the easiest way to kill a rose was to give it a bad name. We're back now in conversation with Michael, kicking off the rosy month of May. As we come back, Michael, who had just recently visited Palm Springs, California for Modernism Week with his partner Rosie, talks about the joys of roses which bloom only once a year, and therefore whose season, as they come around, are that much sweeter, and how we as gardeners begin to alter our own mindsets for what we expect from the plants in our gardens. I, I spend quite a lot of time trying to persuade people to have a go at, at growing once flying roses. And, and I think a lot of it <laughs> falls on deaf ears, mm. um, which is a shame because uh, as I, as well, as you're saying, really, and uh, as I say to them, you know, practically everything else only flowers once uh, in the garden. Uh, and so why ignore a rose, which to me, I mean, the rose... Uh, is the most garden worthy of all plants. Mm. Uh, you know, I argue that you know whatever plant can potentially give you a beautiful individual flower, uh, have a fantastic fragrance, flower for five or six months of the year, or even longer, of course, if you're in, in Southern California, Northern California, those sort of climates, uh, and be easy to look after. You know, there's no other plant that can even start touching it really. Even a plant that just has a beautiful individual flower and a fantastic fragrance and is easy to look after is is very even if any flowers for three or four weeks of the year is still very much worth a growing and you know this obsession with with the the, the the whole world has these days of of having everything available all the time you know whether it's frozen peas or <laughs> you know it, it's terrible how we've become mm-hmm. obsessed to having everything available all the time and it's so boring right. so it means that don't look forward to you know roses flowering in, in summer and, right. and Peas, fresh peas on your plate in in summer and and all the other seasonal things as well 
some of the old roses, the ones flowering old roses, and and I'm particularly keen on the on the the, the wild roses. You know, the mm. the wild roses you find growing. You know, so in the states you've got Virginiana and um, Californica and things like that. Yeah, they're, they're, they're beautiful plants because, okay, they only flower once, but the, such charming flowers. And then you've got the fantastic hips in yeah. the autumn. Yeah. And you don't have to do anything to them. You know, you plant them and you're, you don't have to, you shouldn't, you mustn't prune them. Uh, they're, they're beautiful in their own rights. And you just sort of uh, admire their beauty every every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and uh, you know, then they're good for the wildlife as well because you've got uh, the bees going along to visit them during when they're flowering. And then in the autumn and uh, winter, you've got the hips supplying food for the birds and other animals. Gnawing once flying variety is, is, is terrible, really. Uh, and just a note on um, California is blessed to have native plants in so many of our good genera and roses are included. Californica is a gorgeous plant, and it does actually flower for a fairly long period of time. It is not, however, for a small garden because it is a great habitat, like spreader. And oh, so, absolutely. so uh, she, she's a big girl when she gets yes. going. Um, yeah. The so the David Austin roses. They describe for listeners what he originally was breeding for and then make walk us through what the ethos is now what what are you you know i look at the um the david austin rose book for 2020 and there are so many new introductions talk us through the process of what are what was he originally looking for how was he trying to achieve that? And then how has that changed over these last 35 years? What are you breeding for and trialing now? In essence, actually, it's it's hardly changed at all. Um, I mean, his original idea was to breed a rose that looked like the old roses and that repeat flowered and have a white, had a wider color range. So the old roses, the true old roses, things like the Gallicas and the Damasks and the Albas and things like that, they all only flower once, sort of three or four weeks of the year, and the colours only include white, pink, and purple, not even the true red. Um, so his idea was to try and um, introduce white, uh, repeat flowering into there, and introduce the yellow and apricot and, and red into the colour scheme. Mm-hmm. But when I say they look like the old roses. Of course, the old roses themselves are an incredibly variable group. Some are only sort of two, three feet tall. Others grow six, eight foot tall. Um, some have five petals. Some have well over 100 petals. You know, some are fairly upright. Some are arching. So they're a very variable group of, of roses uh, to look at. Um, and then the other thing about the old roses is that they're actually their fragrance is fairly narrow. So that's one of the great delights uh, of the rose is there's no other plant apart from the tropical epithetic orchids that has such a wide range of completely different fragrance types mm-hmm. as the rose. So in the old roses, you basically got the old rose fragrance, but then crossing the uh, the old roses with other roses from around the world, especially Asian roses, then you got to, you you introduce the tea fragrance, the the myrrh fragrance. Um, huge range of different fruity fragrances and the, the, the musky fragrance as well. So, you know, a rose that doesn't smell is pretty boring, really. It's okay. <laughs> and, um, but it's so much better to, to have a rose that has a fantastic fragrance. Mm. Um, so, yeah, he, 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 um, he started off by just crossing hybrid teas and floribundas with old roses 
and his very first rose was Constant Spry, which probably a lot of people know. Mm-hmm. Still only once flowering, but but still popular today. Huge, great big pink flowers. Uh, and then it was 69 that he introduced his first group of of repeat flowering um, English roses, which is what he was after. And uh, he, he went round to the other rose nurseries at the time trying to uh, see if they would want to grow them. And, of course, they thought he was a total nutcase, you know. Why should I want to grow these funny-looking roses that look like <laughs> old roses that nobody wants to grow when I can sell as many hybrid teas and floribundas as I can produce? So they all told him a run, take take a running jump, um, and it was so. Then he decided, well, if if nobody else is going to grow them, I better grow them myself. So that's when he decided to start up the nursery himself. And and the first few years were a huge struggle because nobody knew about him and and everybody was still in the hybrid tea and floribunda mode but he very gradually brought together a a band of sort of loyal supporters and there were a few other people notably people like uh, Vita Sackville West uh and uh, Graham Thomas who who were loved the old roses and were very instrumental in in trying to prevent them from being lost forever. Oh, so the nursery there now, uh, how it's still the original nursery in its original location? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And how big is that? And tell us what you trial and and what you're how you're breeding there now. All of the breeding of the roses goes on here. We we have about 120 acres here altogether, but in fact, um, because we produce close on to two million roses a year, we uh, rent n- neighbours' farms to actually produce roses, and then they're also grown uh, over on the other side of the country in, in East Anglia, uh, where it's very very good soil and they f- they grow beautiful roses over there. So the, the the rose nursery here at the moment it has the the garden which covers nearly two acres. It has the the plant center where we sell um, roses to to customers. We have all the offices, um, the uh, wholesale production, where it's where all the roses come in, they all get processed, all get graded, labeled, put into monstrous cold stores, and then they uh, either go out to retail customers as bare root roses or get potted on to um, sell uh, to customers or to um, trade customers, to garden centers and the like. Um, so huge areas of roses down to potted plants uh, and then uh, all the greenhouses. So we have over an acre of uh, of glass, which is where all the um, the breeding uh, of the of the roses goes on. If it wasn't for that, of course, probably David Austin roses as such would have not survived very long ago because it's it's made it a, a unique place in the world uh, to which a lot of people come to all the time. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Michael Marriott is the head rosarian at David Austin Roses. As Michael notes, the man David Austin revolutionized how we think about roses over the course of his long career. He introduced his first well-known hybrid, Constance Spry, in 1961. But it wasn't until 1983 that his work to develop colorful, repeat-blooming roses with the charm, habits, and fragrances of old roses finally captured the imagination of the gardening public. David Sr. is quoted as saying, A rose without fragrance is only half a rose. I couldn't agree with him more. We'll be right back for more with Rosarian Michael Marriott. Stay with us. 
Okay, so thinking out loud this week, when I first started my radio program in 2007, a shorter, more localized Northern California version of Cultivating Place called In a North State Garden, it quickly became clear to me as I was doing my research for episodes in that program that there were distinct kinds of gardeners and subgroups in the horticultural world. Among these, there were the edible gardeners, the native plant gardeners, the cut flower gardeners, and then there were the rose gardeners. They had a particular ferocity in their passion. According to the University of Illinois, roses were in such high demand in the 17th century that royalty considered roses or rose water a legal tender, and they were often used as barter and for payments. I read this and I thought, hey, now that is the kind of economy that makes some sense to me. Roses for rent. I like it. I just can't decide if I charge more or less for my roses as a result of the aphids. Is that more life or less life? Is that more valuable or less valuable? And this year, I have a tiny green caterpillar snacking on my roses too. But the sparrows and house finches seem to be making snacks of them, so I'm waiting to see how this particular garden drama unfolds. I will say, the little green caterpillars are particularly disgusting from my human eye view. And I really hope you have no idea what I'm talking about. As I said at the outset of the episode, I'm willing to be patient and trust in my roses to overcome the caterpillars. Because, well, we have history. Have questions about your roses? They likely can be answered by your local rose society. And if you're not sure where your closest group might be, head to the American Rose Society, www.rose.org, or the International Rose Society, www.worldrose.org. Now, back to our rosy conversation with Michael Marriott of David Austin Roses. I planted my first David Austin rose in my Seattle garden in 1995. It might have been L.D. Braithwaite. It might have been Heritage. What was your first David Austin rose? This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. A lot has changed in the world and in the world of rose growing since Michael Marriott first began at David Austin Roses more than 35 years ago. As we come back, Michael continues to share the ethos and goals of the rose breeding program at David Austin. And beauty, beauty is the first and most important goal in any rose they breed. Let's go back a bit. What he what he always wanted his roses to be is beautiful, and you know you think, well, isn't that give, isn't that a given? But actually, no. A lot of of plant breeders around the world they're not looking for beauty. They're looking for novelty. You know, they're looking for things with spotty petals or variegated leaves or things that don't look like what they're meant to look like, you know, and things that are shorter or taller or, 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 you know, all these sort of variations and they're getting away from the original essence of the plant. And I think that is such a shame. Um, you know, things like 
wallflowers. I don't know if you grow wallflowers in in California, but you know we do, and we have a native here in California. Actually, all right. And to me, a, a wallflower is is very pretty. It has lovely colours, but it's got to be fragrant, you know. And the same with a sweet pea. A sweet pea is is very beautiful. It flowers for a long time. It's great, but also it's got to be fragrant. So to breed varieties that just don't have any fragrance, or is you know a shorter or you know, have these great big ruffled petals. That, to me, is completely misses the point. The main criterion for introduction of his roses was, you know, yeah, it's got to be repeat flowering. It's got to have a flower that looks a bit like an old rose. Um, it's got to have a rather informal habit. And the other thing that really has, has become so much more important in the last few years is health, because nobody wants to spray their roses anymore, which is absolutely right. We will very much support that. But the most important character of the lot is beauty. And, you know, so you can have a rose that flowers endlessly, has a fantastic fragrance, gets no disease at all, but actually is boring and ugly. And so, you know, we, we don't want that. And I think that is actually that, that and he uses the word charm a lot as well, uh, as well. And um, if, if a rose didn't have that sort of magical uh, character of charm, then it would, wouldn't be introduced. And, and I think that is actually the main reason why they've become so popular and successful around the world, because people recognize that. You might go along to a garden center and say, God, what an amazing plant. You know, it's sort of such bright colors and it flowers all the time. And you plant it in your garden and after a few weeks, you think, oh, actually, I, I don't like that very much. And you, you dig it up and throw it away. But, you know, if you have something that's beautiful, as well as being sort of tough and reliable and all the rest of it, then you're 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 um, much more likely to to look after it, nurture it, and and appreciate it as well, and keep it for many years. I mean, I'm I'm as you're speaking, you know, about the beauty and the charm and the the habit, and to me also, I think uh, David Austin does uh, as a company, and I'm sure as the man himself uh, in the past. They do a fantastic job of naming their plants so that they evoke this sense of charm and beauty and romance and and scent or history or a personality even, such as the Graham Thomas and the Constant Spry. When you look at your new introductions in 2020, what are – maybe give us a handful of ones that you think people should pay a little extra attention to, whether for – color or or habit or health, because um, I think that is also one of the things that the old roses and the English roses evoke for us, is this sense of um, of bounty and, you know, a, an overspilling border with a mix of plants and bees and birds, and it just sort of reads of a happy, healthy garden. Uh, yes, I mean, that's what uh, I'm, I'm a great advocate of, of mixing up plants. People, uh, roses were always grown in rose gardens, and of course, rose gardens can look good but often look absolutely dreadful um and they're monocultures and you know as we found out with the coronavirus um you know if you have monoculture too many people stuck together in one place uh then that that spells trouble and it's exactly the same with a, with a rose garden uh if you have you know 
a few tens or hundreds of roses um, put together in, in, in one place, then the pests and diseases are going to rub their hands in glee and think, oh, yes, I can do my, my darndest here and, and you know, wreak, wreak havoc. havoc. Um, and But if you mix up your roses with other plants, then the pests and diseases find it much more uh, difficult to to spread around the place, and the the other plants will be in, uh, encouraging beneficial insects to to come into the garden and help um, control your pests. And and the other thing is, it just looks beautiful. You know, I, I think that actually roses mixed up with with other plants uh, is is it really enhances the roses. It's a great great way of introducing blue into the color scheme. Um, and uh, then the, the the small flowers of the perennials look great. The large flowers of the of the roses, um, very different habits. So you can have you know if you have things like um, delphiniums or or verbascums, you know very spike mm. or digitalis foxgloves, then it contrasts beautifully with the more informal habit um, of the roses. So it, you know it's a it's a win win situation there. It, it it looks beautiful and it helps you to. Um, to, to have healthier plants and more pest-free plants in your garden. In terms of, of varieties, um, I mean, it's very difficult to choose, but I mean, what, one of my favorites is, is um, Desdemona. Uh, it's this sort of creamy white one, uh, lovely fragrance, um, uh, flowers very freely, a very healthy rose. Um, James Austin, one of the new ones we introduced a couple of years ago, um, just fairly new in the States, actually. It's a very deep pink one there, very free-flying, again, very healthy, lovely fragrance. Um, one of my favorites is Lady of Shalott. Um, I, I, at home, I'm where, where, of course, well, I'm, I'm very fussy about what roses go in the garden, and, and, and I have the, I have the, um, the wonderful ability to sort of go and basically help myself to whatever I right. want, really, you know, to try that because my, my garden is a sort of a trial garden and we do some photography from there as well. So, you know, I try and mix up plants or we, I should say, we try and mix up plants with, with roses with other plants. And uh, we, that, that's, I think that Lady of Shalott is the one variety that um, we have most of in the garden. It's sort of an apricot color, uh, not the best fragrance, but still very nice. And just flowers like man, very tough and reliable. It can be grown as a lovely climber as well. Nice. Uh, and then another climber, which is I absolutely love, is called the Generous Gardener. I saw that one. Uh, that one looks so good. And I love that name. That's such a great name. I absolutely <laughs> I think it's wonderful, yes. <laughs> because, yes, I think most gardeners are, are very generous. Um, and generous with their time as well. I always think, you know, planting up your... Your um your front garden, you know, down by the road. You know, people walk past it, and then if you're if you're working there in the garden, and there's somebody walking past, it's, it's very easy to get into a conversation mm -hmm. with them and uh, just uh, just exchange ideas and and enthuse about certain varieties and and uh, yeah, it's a it's a great way. I mean, that was a nice thing in in Palm Springs, seeing all these um one the, the front garden right by the road, just go walking up and down the road and looking at all these um cacti and succulents and things like that, and 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 just and just being amazed about the amount of 
such green grass being mm. grown mm. in Palm Springs. We're working on that. Oh, We're working oh, on that. Um, yeah, <laughs> let's not, let's not focus on that, Michael. Um, <laughs> yes, so it was. it's nice to hear you say that there were so many front gardens um, because it would be, yeah, if I had my way, we would have all front gardens and no green lawn, especially in the state of California. So um, did I understand you to say that your partner's name is what? Rosie. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So how do you and Rosie take care of your roses at your home garden? Not nursery standard, but home garden standard. Yes, it was in, in, actually, it was interesting. I was talking to somebody earlier on today, and, and this is a very common thing. I think people have this idea that roses are fussy things. Uh, you know, they need special conditions and all that sort of thing. But actually, if you choose the right variety uh, – and and prepare the ground reasonably well by adding some organic matter into the soil. Roses are actually the easiest thing to grow. You know, they unfortunately a lot of the old laws that came from growing hybrid teas for the show bench um, st- are still reckoned to be valid today, and and it's absolute rubbish. You know, all this stuff about how you prune it to an outward pointing bud and at an angle and and you have to do this, that, and the other. It's all, it's all, it's all, it's all dreadful. It's, it's, you know, <laughs> it, none of it is true at all. You know, when you prune, you just, you just reduce it. You're just essentially reducing the height by about a half. You know, and really don't worry about where you're cutting the stem or what the angle is or anything like that. Uh, it, it, roses are very forgiving things, and you'll still get a very good result. Um, so it just, yeah, just, just. Uh, a rose is a t- really tough plant, and so it'll be able to cope with a, uh, l- less than ideal conditions. But if you can, it's always worthwhile um, trying to prepare the ground well by adding a certain amount of well-rotted organic matter to the soil. And then the, the other, the two crucial things is preparing the ground well, and the other crucial thing is choosing a good variety. You know, you go along to a garden centre, you see, oh, that's a pretty rose or a pretty plant. I'll have that. Uh, and it may look pretty on that day, but actually, what does it look like, you know, a week later or, or months later or something like that? Mm-hmm. So try and do a little bit of research on which the good varieties are. So, you know, talk to consulting rosarians from the ARS, talk to your neighbours. You know, if you see a beautiful rose, so, you know, what variety is that? Um, talk to us at the nursery, uh, David Austin Road, they, they, they're always very happy to advise. And that's part of the problem, of course, of the States. You have such a, a wide variety of different climates. Uh, it's trying to find a variety that is good in all parts. It's difficult, but uh, but you know, there are certain varieties. And, and California is generally a fairly easy climate to grow roses mm-hmm. uh, in. You, you don't get, um, I don't think you get Japanese beetle very much there, do you? Uh, we don't know. We don't get too much of that. You can, you know, we'll get black spot and we'll get mildew yeah. and we'll get love aphids, love them. And, <laughs> um, but that's mostly, you know, a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, not setting up the boundaries around, you know, having good air and overwatering and watering the leaves at the wrong time of day. Absolutely. So much oh, of I'm that can be. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that actually because that's the best way of encouraging black spot is to be watering you know, in the yeah. middle of the night, and then the leaves stay wet for, for many hours, and then black spot uh, thinks that's great. You know, that's, that's very kind of you to, to, to encourage me to grow. And then powdery <laughs> mildew is, is, um, is a symptom of dryness at the roots. 
Uh, and then and then of course overwatering can be very bad as well you know there's trouble i mean irrigation systems are are very valuable but they you, you've got to keep an eye on them uh, mm-hmm. to see what they're doing don't, yeah don't think they're just doing the job for you and it's it's a kind of a dilemma i think especially in dry climates um wherever you might be is you know coming up with that um, that perfect formula of watering when you're not going to lose most of your water through, uh, you know, evaporation in the heat of the day, but also watering your roses at a time when they can then dry off. And so um, I think this is where that great old adage that the best uh, fertilizer is the shadow of the gardener um, is huh. to, you know, just uh, pay attention and yes. go hand water the roots if that's what it takes in the in the morning. And um, yeah, and some, you know, that's easier for some than others. And if you have to put up with a little black spot, well, there are worse things in life. Absolutely. And and, and that's very important um, is that, yeah, so what if it gets a bit of black spot? People, you know, if there's probably one disease they know in the garden, it's probably black spot on roses. <laughs> and, you know, people go around with their magnifying glass. Oh, God, I've got black spot. Oh, <laughs> panic, panic. You know, they reach for the chemical bottles and, but, you know, yeah. No, what's, no, what's don't do it. Black spot? But actually, on the other hand, what I always advise is, if a variety gets too much black spot or rust or powdery mildew or whatever, the best thing I, I, I love this phrase that you use in the states of shovel prune. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I I give a lot of lectures over here in the UK, and I I always I always nearly always say that to people is is uh, this uh, phrase of shovel pruning. And so yeah, if a, if a rose gets too much disease or is, you know just is not doing what it should do then shovel prune it, get rid of yeah. it and, and plant something else in its stead that is is going to be much healthier and, and more beautiful as well. Because if you do have a rose that is forever getting black spot or rust or mildew, then it'll be spreading it to its neighbours. Um, so just get rid of it and, and have something better in there. Yeah. And life is too short to have a constant battle with a plant and to have your plant make you unhappy versus happy. So I'm very taken, I have to ask one personal Rosarian question. I'm very taken by Lady Emma Hamilton. Tell me a little bit about that one. Ah, that's, um, yeah, I mean, I I always encourage people, if I'm showing people around the garden here, I always encourage people to to smell that one. Um, And they always come off with a smile on their face because it, it has the most accessible recognizable and strong fragrance of just about any rose so it's a very very fruity Ah. fragrance often a bit like guavas and lychees and sometimes more citrusy and um, so it's it's just just absolutely delicious (laughs) i love the color and the color is fantastic too yeah Yeah. so even at the bud stage um it has these sort of wonderful strong flame colors around the just as the sepals are separated and actually even when it's just growing in spring the leaves are a really strong uh, sort of bronzy color so Mm. even in spring it's really attractive um and then when the blooms come out they're absolutely they're fantastically strong color and the wonderful fragrance as well so Mm. yeah it's a lovely variety that one you know as we are coming towards the end of our time one of the things that i want to ask you is in this world of, you know, too much green grass and over water in a place that shouldn't have water like Palm Springs or, you know, in the UK, the loss of hedgerows and, you know, increasing monoculture in places there, this devastating 
report these last five years on our loss of insect biodiversity in the world. When you think about some of these bigger challenges and the role of gardeners and gardens in these spaces, what 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 are your hopes and what do you see as the 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 benefits of, you know, increasing the biodiversity of our roses and this more naturalistic way of gardening with them in a more, just a less sort of demand and high maintenance. And, you know, do you, do you see gardens and roses as being able to play a beneficial role with these challenges, Michael? Yes, very much so. I think roses are probably, uh, I'm pretty sure they're the most loved of all garden plants. And so it can be a, they can be a conduit into loving gardens and loving plants generally. Uh, and of course, the more that you get out and appreciate gardens and nature, well, gardens and, and work with them, the more likely you are to then actually appreciate nature as a whole. Uh, and not just in the garden, but um, but the whole wide the, the, or, or nature all around you, whether it's a desert or you know tropical jungle or whatever, um, and and so then that appreciation makes you value um, how incredibly important it is. And gardens, in fact, people in the past, and probably maybe it was true more uh, um, in sort of the fifties and sixties when when sprays were so much more common and luckily Rachel Carson came along and and told us um, what a dreadful thing we were doing to our planet Mm -hmm. uh, at that time with DDT and things like that that actually gardens are hugely uh, biodiverse and and they're incredibly important so as as a researcher in this country I think who's who's, uh, an entomologist and she's identified all the insects that come into garden and there's hundreds you know, absolutely yeah. hundreds of them, yeah. uh, and you'd never think that really. And the, so, the, the, it, as as the wildlife becomes scarce and scarcer, so they're they're going to be relying more more on on gardens for their source of food and for habitats and things like that. So, yes, it, to look after your garden and have it as as diverse as possible is absolutely crucial. Um, and I, I was fairly optimistic that I that I would um, outlive uh, before the climate was completely wrecked. But actually, I'm getting quite pessimistic now that I'm I'm not going. To, I'm you know before before I leave this earth, I'm going to be the the the, the world is going to actually be in a pretty dire place. So we need to really do something serious about it now it's just yeah we are in a climate crisis no two ways about it and and we um you know not not even for us but for um all that come behind us we need to do everything we can and so with that in mind and this wasn't a question that i gave you in advance but could you leave us with the names of two or three um, roses that you would recommend for their their pollen and maybe for their great hips to serve the habitat even more than serving us? Um, well, for, for, for maximum pollen, uh, then you need to go for the roses that only have five petals. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's a rose called Totterine by Gently, <laughs> which, is, uh, which is a 
<laughs> and that has got only five petals, and then it produces the most wonderful um, crop of hips uh, in the autumn that, that uh, I'm sure in California would last right through the winter. And then the other one, actually, the generous gardener, as I mentioned earlier on, um, that's not hasn't got a huge number of petals and if you don't deadhead that that produces that, that so the bees can still access the pollen very easily right. uh and then uh then if you don't deadhead it then it, that also produces a really wonderful crop of great big uh almost cherry tomato like sized hips that again ah. last really well through the winter but it's it's always interesting actually to to not deadhead some varieties or not deadhead all of the varieties because quite often you'll find a lot of the varieties will actually produce some lovely hips and so it's just worth yeah. leaving a few on and just see what happens and they'll, they'll a lot of them will last um, for a long time on the plant. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It has been a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, it's been an absolute delight for me too. Roses, as a group, are believed to be more than 35 million years old based on fossil evidence. And across the northern hemisphere, there are some 150 distinct species. Based on records, the rose has been cultivated by people for more than 5,000 years, beginning in China. Michael Marriott is technical manager and senior rosarian of David Austin Roses. He's among the world's most respected experts on the subject. He's known for his rose garden design and his common sense approach to looking after what are sometimes considered to be fussy plants. His own gardens have always been run on organic principles, selecting only the healthiest varieties of roses generously intermixed with other flowering plants to attract and support beneficial biodiversity. At David Austin Roses for more than 35 years, Michael's knowledge of roses is encyclopedic, and his love for them is expansive, especially the fragrant roses, the species roses, the old roses, the climbers and ramblers, and the best of the modern and English roses. From its base in the United Kingdom, David Austin sells roses in 30 countries through mail order and retail. English roses, of which there are 230 varieties to date, are considered the benchmark for modern roses. David Austin won 24 gold medals at the prestigious Chelsea Flower Show in London through the course of his career, and in 2007, he was awarded the Order of the British Empire for his services to horticulture. Join us again next week when Cultivating Place continues its ode to rose season in conversation with rose devotee Fallon Shea of California. The earth is in all of our hands. Bring your joy and take good care. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio, now also heard weekly on KWMR out of Point Reyes Station. Over on CultivatingPlace.com this week, make sure to check out the beautiful images and useful information on the roses Michael and I talked about today. The singles, the doubles, the repeats, and the very, very fragrant. If you aren't sure what to get your mother or yourself for Mother's Day, you might think of a good rose bouquet, a rose plant, or a rose book. 
You just can't go wrong headed in that rosy direction. Thank you for listening. In this strange time of distance and even isolation, our gardens bring us closer together, to one another and to what we find of value in this world. Thank you as well to all of you who find value in these conversations and support the work of Cultivating Place through your donations. One-time gifts and sustaining monthly donations of any amount can be made by clicking the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you in advance. Together we grow better. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Places distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.